You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. The double murder of a Victoria couple three decades ago will be front and center in a Washington state courtroom tomorrow as jury selection finally begins. The bodies of 18-year-old Tanya Van Kylenborg and her boyfriend, 20-year-old Jay Cook, were found in 1987. Kylie Stanton spoke to Van Kylenborg's brother about the arrest that came 31 years after their murders and how he's bracing himself for the trial. This one's a photograph of Tanya and her family dog, Tess, at home. Smiling and full of life. This is how John Van Kylenborg likes to remember his sister. Really personifies her and her compassion for animals. But instead, for the past 31 years, he's been haunted by her unsolved rape and murder. You know, for the most part, it was just this open question. 18-year-old Van Kylenborg and her high school sweetheart, Jay Cook, left Victoria, bound for Seattle, November 18, 1987. Investigators believe they may have picked up a hitchhiker. Several days later, Van Kylenborg's body was found in a ditch south of Bellingham. She had been raped and shot in the head. Cook's body was found under a bridge two days later. Their vehicle dumped in Bellingham. They were both of a nature where they thought the world was good. They trusted everyone. For three decades, there were barely any leads. And eventually, the case went cold. Until last year. In April of 2018, the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office released three images of what the killer may have looked like at age 25, 45, and 65, using a revolutionary technique known as phenotyping based on the DNA found on Van Kylenborg's body. It's not 100% accurate, but they've had some successes, and that's what we're looking for. A month later, using genetic genealogy from entries on the website GED Match, a suspect was identified. William Earl Talbot II was arrested and charged. Having someone charged sort of brought home the reality that people were uh, continuing to make best efforts and continuing to try to solve this. Now the family is preparing for the trial that's expected to last four weeks. It uh, provides some, some measure of closure that uh, we're able to provide some amount of justice to this case. But at this point, it's also about the bigger picture, providing hope for others who may be waiting for a break. Even after so many decades and so much time that uh, these cases can still be solved. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Holy New video tonight of that deadly crash on the water in Osoyoos over the weekend. The tragedy claiming two lives. The bodies of those two men have now been recovered. Three others were taken to hospital. Global's Shelby Tom has the latest, including efforts to raise the sunken vessels. Devastating developments as the bodies of two missing boaters have been recovered 24 hours after their boat collided with another vessel here on Asuyus Lake. Police say the RCMP dive team recovered the bodies of a 35-year-old man from Kamloops and a 36-year-old man from Maple Ridge around 7 p.m. on Sunday. RCMP marine analysts who specialize in investigating marine collisions are back on the water today trying to piece together what happened. Both boats are being raised from the bottom of the lake. The accident occurred around 7.15 p.m. Saturday on the water between Highway 3 and Haynes Point. Witnesses say three men on an aluminum fishing boat were T-boned by a fast-moving red vessel. The crash was captured on surveillance video and obtained by Global News. In the video, the red boat can be seen moving at a high rate of speed. 
the boat hitting the other boat and going in the air was just it was just so horrific. The two men in the fast moving boat died. The three men on the boat that was struck survived and were transported to hospital. They were holding on to the bow of the boat, right? And there must have been air in there to hold it because they were holding on till we got out there to get them. The identities of the deceased are not being released as the CU's RCMP investigate the cause of the collision. Any witnesses or people with surveillance video are asked to contact them. Shelby Tom, Global News, CU's. A battle is brewing in Vancouver between a hospice society and a townhouse developer. The hospice is concerned the project will have a negative impact on terminally ill patients and could potentially shutter the facility. Grace Key explains why. It is really particularly nice because it has this expansive view of the sky and, uh, and the trees. It's a peaceful oasis for families to gather during the final few precious moments of a loved one's life. The hospice on Vancouver's Granville Street worked hard to develop this peaceful environment and even the parking lot where a hearse arise was thought out with great sensitivity. With this development going, going up, we will have people on balconies, we will have uh, children playing and uh, noise. And when the hospice was built six years ago, it had to make sure it fit in with the residential neighborhood. Now there's a proposal to rezone the single family home next door into a three and a half story development with 21 stacked rental townhome units and 32 parking spaces. A planning consultant retained by the developer says the two can coexist if designed well. The ironic danger of council validating the unfounded fear that hospices and gentle density can't coexist is that NIMBYs may actually use that argument to fight against future hospices. The proposal would take advantage of an interim policy that fills a much needed gap for purpose-built rentals. When you look at this situation, there is a policy for to build affordable rental housing any housing that is developed at this site will not be affordable. The city created this interim policy because it needs rental housing. Uh, and uh, it matches the city's objectives around uh, the climate emergency, diverse and affordable housing, uh, walking, biking and public transit support and less car dependency. If the project is approved, the 8-bit hospice would likely close its doors during the expected two-year construction phase. A public hearing is scheduled for Tuesday. Grace Key, Global News. Consumers are being warned about an online puppy scam targeting B.C. residents. The Better Business Bureau received several reports about an ad on eclassifiedsforyou.com of free beagle puppies up for adoption. The scammer instructs victims to purchase $500 in Google Play gift cards to cover the costs of the paper transfers and shipping. Sometimes victims are asked to pay a further $1,500 to $2,000 for a crate to ship the puppy. On the premise, the money will be refunded. The most important tips I would say is look out for the method of payment that you're being asked um, to do. So for instance, in this case with this particular scam, it was Google, uh, Google Play gift cards. So if anyone is asking you to pay with gift cards to do an, in, an interact e-transfer, a money order, Western Union or MoneyGram, treat that as a red flag. Why? Because of the fact that once these payments have been made, especially through these specific platforms, it's almost impossible to get your money back. Meantime, the BCSPCA is searching for the person who left a mother dog and her puppies at the dump. 
Take a look. A Good Samaritan found Casey, as she's now being called, and her nine puppies inside a sealed box at the Punsey Lake landfill. The dogs were later transferred from Williams Lake to the Quinnell SPCA. Casey is believed to be about a year old. Her puppies only a week old. Thankfully, we believe that they were found shortly after they were left there because they're in pretty good condition. The mom is very thin, um, but that obviously uh, may have been because of some neglect earlier. But um, the puppies are doing well. They were found very quickly. But if someone hadn't happened upon them, those animals certainly would have died in that situation. It's so frustrating because there's no reason why any animal would have to be abandoned like that. The SPCA is always there as a safety net. There's always help if you can't look after an animal. A special unveiling today of the newly revamped ER in Merritt. In addition to the upgrades, the hospital now boasts several unique features aimed at making everyone feel welcome. Catherine Urquhart has more on the two rainbow crosswalks and how they were inspired by an initiative first put forward by a group of students. At Nicola Valley Hospital in Merritt, a $6.5 million expansion project is officially unveiled. Also revealed two rainbow crosswalks. It brings me very much happiness. It brings me very much relief because I've been advocating for a rainbow crosswalk somewhere in Merritt for months and months and months. A large rainbow has been painted outside emergency. A smaller band of color is on the floor inside the hospital. Having a, a rainbow crosswalk, not just outside, but inside uh, the Merritt Emergency Department is a statement to everyone that everyone's welcome and that it's, uh, and it didn't come from me. It came from people in Merritt, students in Merritt, young people from Merritt, who were not waiting for other people to change the world and change the world themselves. Last year, a rainbow crosswalk was proposed by students at Merritt Secondary, but City Council rejected the idea. That prompted two Vancouver lawyers to offer up their parking lots in Merritt for paint jobs. It impacts nobody to put a rainbow on the ground. It negatively impacts nobody. Soon after, owners of the Coldwater Hotel raised a rainbow flag. Then friends of the hotel and students from Merritt Secondary transformed their entire parking lot into a rainbow, showing their solidarity with the LGBTQ community. Now the hospital rainbows. Now that I can see that they're here and they're all ready and everything's just, everything's put together and set in stone, it's, it truly does put a smile on my face. Advocates say Merritt's freshly painted rainbows send a strong message about equality and inclusion. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. A big night for Raptors fans and a potentially historic night for the team and Canadian basketball. Let's take a look at a live shot of Abbotsford Centre, which is hosting a Game 5 viewing party. Basketball fans of all ages arriving early for the 6 p.m. tip-off. Nearly every seat in the house has been taken up. A victory tonight over Golden State means the Raps will take the franchise's first ever league championship. Of course, it would also mark the first time a Canadian team has won the crown. So let's go live to Jurassic Park in Toronto where we find Global's Mark Carcassol and really next level fan excitement there, Mark. 
Oh man, an absolutely packed house here in Jurassic Park, Sophie. It is literally packed to capacity, as are all the overflow areas. I mean, I think my words don't do justice to the visual. Look at how packed we are here. Everyone with their heads up now because the game has begun. Opening tip-off just happened, the Raptors winning that, and that was the first big cheer. What tends to kind of happen here is there are lulls, right? The crowd falls into silence as they're watching. Something big happens, they start cheering. Something they don't like so much happens. There you go, case in point. Something they don't like so much happens, like Kevin Durant takes the court and people boo. Now, uh, early in this game, literally just a minute into it, the Raptors Raptors are down 3-2. We all know, though, that the Raptors can overcome all odds. Game 4 showed us that. In terms of the amount of people here, there are people that lined up, in some cases, for days. Game 4 was on Friday. There's one couple from Cambridge, outside of Toronto, that lined up immediately after Game 4 was over. They went straight from Jurassic Park, right back into the line to line up again, had a tent, and they are here now uh, enjoying the game. There's even one family, a father and son, who lined up a couple days ahead and actually got tickets, one ticket to get into the game. So some people may wonder why people waste their time lining up. That's a key example of what can happen. Now, uh, we will be keeping up with this uh, on globalnews.ca and online as well. Uh, this is going to be a long night for Raptors fans because if we win tonight, this party's just going to spill out into the streets. So. Absolutely, but uh, I'm sure the Raptors fans are up for it. One more thing before I let you watch the game, Mark. I understand there was a special rendition of O Canada tonight. There was, yeah. This playoff run has very much made the Raptors Canada's team. We've interviewed people over the course of the last couple of weeks who've come down here to Toronto to watch games at Jurassic Park from New Brunswick, uh, all over the Maritimes. There's a couple from none of it. And, uh, you know, because they've become Canada's team, this is basically a way to unify it. And that's why fans were in charge of singing No Canada tonight, led by an opera singer, but it was really the fans that led it. You know what? Even Vancouverites can get behind a, a Toronto team in this case. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy the evening tonight. Right now, though, with the number of craft breweries on the Lower Mainland, you might find it hard to believe BC hop farmers are struggling. It turns out many of those craft breweries are not as homegrown as you'd might think. Making matters worse, farmers say, is the government kicking them when they're down. John Hua has the story. While the craft beer business is booming in British Columbia, another part of the industry is having trouble seeing the success as a glass half full. Despite the word local being promoted by both brewers and the government through by local programs, it's not actually happening. The reality is many craft breweries are using hops from the U.S. and Europe, leaving local farmers to watch as their hopes die on the vine. We've lost over 30% of the hop farms in B.C. this year. Where lines of homegrown hops once grew, the ropes have been cut. The fields now covered in weeds, even though the craft brewery industry is expanding. We've got here some hops from last year. Stewart says not enough are buying. There hasn't been a real financial incentive for the brewers to switch their existing suppliers. There needs to be some incentives put in place to help that marketplace kick off. Making matters even worse, BC Hop Fest, an event meant to promote brewers that do use local hops, has been suspended due to a technicality. With our Harvest IPA, we actually got all the hops here from the farm, which is really cool for us. Because hops aren't being sold directly to attendees, 
A permit to hold the festival on agricultural land was denied. It's a tremendous example of the right hand not understanding what's necessary for the left hand to, to operate properly. In a statement, the city of Abbotsford writes the city will provide BC Hop Festival with an event permit once they receive their non-farm use approval from the Ministry of Agriculture. The Provincial Agricultural Commission, which made the ruling, did not respond to requests for comment. While the BC Craft Brewers Guild says it hopes to work with local hop producers, farmers say it's the assumption that local beer is made using homegrown ingredients that's causing this industry to fall flat. John Hua, Global News. It will soon be illegal to keep whales and dolphins in captivity in Canada, except in some circumstances. The House of Commons has passed Bill S-203 at third reading, paving the way for it to receive royal assent. The bill includes grandfather clause for animals already in facilities and permits, uh, permits legitimate research and the rescue of animals in distress. It also bans the trade of reproductive materials. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announcing today Canada will jump into the growing battle against destructive single-use plastics with a nationwide ban. But as Linda Aylesworth reports, the plan is short on details or even what exactly will be banned. Canadians produce three and a quarter million tons of plastic waste each year. Much of it finds its way into the ocean where it wreaks havoc. Recycling helps, but not to the extent we might hope. Only about 9% of plastics in Canada is actually diverted for recycling, but actually less than that is being recycled. Reducing the amount of plastic waste was the subject of a morning press conference, where the federal government announced that as early as 2021, single-use plastics will be banned coast-to-coast. We will move forward by developing a science-based approach to determine which plastic products fall into this category. A second measure was also announced that manufacturers and retailers be responsible for collecting and recycling their plastic waste. The goal is to transfer the responsibility for recycling to companies that generate plastic waste in the first place while reducing the amount of plastic waste in the environment. It's called extended producer responsibility and it's being greeted enthusiastically by environmental watchdogs. That will then feed into their decision-making about what types of materials they use, how they use those materials, how, whether they design packaging for recycling, or they make them reusable, or they reduce the amount of plastic they use. By recycling or reusing these plastics, we can reduce pollution, generate billions of dollars in revenue, and create approximately 42,000 jobs across the country. Environmental advocates welcome any action on reducing plastic waste, but the lack of details is disconcerting for some, as is the uncertainty that comes with an approaching election. Can they get enough done before the election? Um, and, you know, can they take concrete steps so that whatever government comes in uh, in the fall can keep it moving forward? Linda Aylesworth, Global News. About four months to go until this fall's federal election. And according to a new poll, the Liberals have stopped the bleeding triggered by the Jody Wilson-Raybould SNC-Lavalin controversy. Keith Baldry is live in Victoria with the highlights of a new poll. Keith? 
Yeah, uh, Sophie, we don't always uh, look at every poll that comes out, but we do focus on pollsters that have pretty good track records. One of those pollsters is, over the years, has been Angus Reid. So it's interesting to track the, the movement of public opinion. These are snapshot polls. When you compare them to previous polls, you can see where the electorate is going. Good news for the Tories, but perhaps even better news for the Liberals. So here's the numbers from a poll just completed by Angus Reid. The Conservative, Conservatives still contain a healthy lead at 37%, down a point from last month's poll. The Liberals are up a bit, a second consecutive after their fortunes are rising, so perhaps it's as bad as it gets for the Liberals. The NDP, though, continues to be in big trouble, down three points, and they're basically fighting out with the Green Party now to stay in third place. The Greens continue to show modest momentum. Other highlights here, I'm going to read, uh, picking up the fact that Conservatives lead in every region, every province they have a, a lead. Uh, but the Liberals are close in the riding-rich areas, provinces of Ontario and Quebec, and the Atlantic as well. And the Greens, no surprise, are the strongest uh, base of support here in BC, particularly Metro Vancouver suburbs and Vancouver. Again, a snapshot of public opinion. The election, as you say, is not for four months from now, but in the days ahead, we're going to be reporting other polls. It'll be important to look at the, the trends in public opinion, which parties are gaining, which are, are going backwards. The Conservatives have to be a little concerned. They really haven't moved off that 37% for months. As much as the Liberals are hurting, it doesn't seem to be benefiting uh, the Conservatives at the federal level. But stay tuned. Lots more to come. Yeah, we'll see what happens over the next few months, Keith. Thank you. For five years, it was a fixture on the side of B.C.'s highways and pretty much hated by drivers everywhere. It has been nearly 20 years since lead-footed drivers got photo radar tickets in their mailbox. But a Kelowna City Councillor wants the province to give municipalities the power to bring it back. And along Highway 97 in West Kelowna reads, traffic laws enforced by cameras. And it may just be a sign of the times ahead if a West Kelowna city councillor gets his way. Photo radar works. Veteran city councillor Rick DeYoung is proposing welcoming back the long lens of the law to BC's highways and byways. Speeding in our local neighbourhoods, in around our schools, in around our homes. It's an issue, it's an issue I hear regularly from concerned citizens. And so at Tuesday's meeting, DeYoung is asking West Kelowna City Council to call on the province to allow local municipalities to set up their own photo radar. I'm not looking for the speeders that are one or two over. I'm looking for the speeders that are 30, 40 and 50 over, particularly in school zones where our kids are walking on the side of the street. But the idea of of resurrecting photo radar is controversial to say the least. So we asked some West Kelowna residents what they thought and not surprisingly, they were split. I think the government treats it more as a cash cow than anything else. It's not a safety deterrent and I think that's the problem is it's it's a money grab. Would you like to see photo radar set up in West Kelowna? Yes, I would. Why? Because there's a lot of speeding drivers in West Kelowna. And you think that'll help slow them down? Absolutely. Oddly enough, DeYoung agrees with both assessments, but says photo radar is a means to an end. It's only a money grab if you're speeding. If you don't like the money grab, don't speed. And depending on how the NDP government reacts, it's a local initiative that could have speeding drivers province-wide receiving unwanted photos in the mail. Travis Lowe, Global News, West Kelowna. Office workers evacuate down stairwells as smoke billows from a high-rise. A helicopter crash in New York conjuring up disturbing reminders of 9-11. 
Police photos showing the chopper virtually obliterated on impact. A tense day in Manhattan after the helicopter flying in dense clouds and heavy rain in airspace that's supposed to be off limits slammed into the top of the 54-floor office tower. Everyone was wondering if this was another terror attack from the skies. Horrifying moments in the heart of Manhattan during the lunchtime rush. We have what appears to be a helicopter that crashed into the roof. The helicopter is on fire. A helicopter crash landing just before 2 p.m. on the top of a skyscraper, leaving one dead. The pilot, identified by a manager at Linden Municipal Airport as Timothy McCormick. We got to the roof. What we saw was a debris field that was on fire. Terrified office workers evacuating immediately. No idea what happened. We felt the building shake. You don't know what's going on. Just go. The foul, rainy weather adding to the sense of chaos. A massive police and fire response through the dense midday traffic on scene in four minutes. There is no indication at this time that this was an act of terror. And there is no ongoing threat to New York City. But for many New Yorkers, it brought back painful memories. Everybody was running out. It was very scary that everybody had to run out. They thought it was like 9-11. The 54-story, 750-foot building sits just blocks from Times Square and Trump Tower, where airspace is severely restricted. The pilot had just dropped off a passenger at a helipad on 34th Street when he took off amid rain and clouds. The crash landing happening just 11 minutes later. Two key questions for investigators tonight. Why was the helicopter flying in such murky weather? And who cleared it to fly? Ron Allen, NBC News, New York. Residents of a Dallas apartment building are still in a state of shock tonight after a huge construction crane toppled onto their building on Sunday. Oh my God, the crane is falling over. Oh my God. The crane sliced through the building, killing one woman and injuring five people, two of them critically. Heavy winds, the likely culprit. Residents of the apartment building are being allowed to collect their belongings, but still have no idea when they might be able to return home. Oh my God, the crane is falling over. Oh my God. Onlookers gasped in horror as oh the God. towering oh crane God. came crashing down on a five-story apartment building in downtown Dallas. Uh, seen right out of Twister. Alex Dutta describes the chaos as he took this video. You're checking on the other tenants that you know. Just text them, hey, did you hear that? Are you okay? You okay? 29-year-old Kirsten Smith was killed. Five other people injured. What was going through your head? Trying to survive. The same storm system brought torrential rain to Oklahoma and North Carolina. In Tennessee, raging water swept away and killed a two-year-old boy and prompted water rescues. Today in Dallas, police escorted residents back to the apartment complex to get their belongings, some raising questions about why the crane couldn't withstand the 70-mile-an-hour wind gusts. The crane company tells NBC News it's cooperating with authorities, adding our thoughts and prayers are with the families of those who were killed and injured. Yesenia Bosquez and her husband Jay had moved in just two weeks ago. He's now in critical condition. Todd Clement is their attorney. You know, there's no way that proper procedures were followed or you would not have the situation we see right behind us. It could take days to remove this crane. Tonight, three people are still hospitalized but are expected to recover. One of the world's most active volcanoes has erupted again, causing some panic among people living nearby. The eruption of Indonesia's Mount Sinabung sent ash almost eight kilometers into the air. The eruption lasted for nine minutes. Officials are warning further activity is possible. The explosion coated the nearby town of Karo with a thick layer of ash. But at this point, it appears no one was injured. 
In Health Matters tonight, it's National Blood Donor Week, and Canadian Blood Services wants donors to tell everyone why they gave blood. The agency wants anyone whose life has been changed by blood products to share their reason for donating on social media using the hashtag What's Your Reason? Canadian Blood Services says more than 100,000 new blood donors are needed to maintain the national blood supply and meet the needs of patients who require blood transfusions. Well, Chris Galis has spent the day at the golf course today, all for a good cause. The BGH and UBC Hospital Foundation is hosting more than 150 golfers at Point Grey Golf and Country Club for the annual Harry Rosen Tournament for Life to raise funds for prostate cancer research. Since the tournament began 23 years ago, they have raised more than $4.6 million for improved screening, state-of-the-art diagnostic tools, and better treatment options. Over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen many successes in that regard as men are living longer, uh, better, uh, and eventually we're going to turn this into a chronic disease that men die with rather than of. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. A happy homecoming today for a B.C. Second World War veteran after taking part in the 75th anniversary of D-Day in France. 94-year-old Warner Hawken of Chilliwack was given an appropriate hero's welcome from a large crowd of Legion members. Hawken was one of 50 Canadian D-Day veterans who were invited to Normandy. Back in 1944, he was on his way to visit family in England on a 48-hour pass when he was told his visit was being cancelled because of the invasion. What would be some of the memories, one of the memories you had when you stood on the beach thinking about those days 75 years ago? Uh, I, in the meantime, I got old. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a good thing, wasn't it? Because a lot didn't get to get old. No, that's right, yeah. A lot of memories came back to me. You know, I wading ashore, and uh, there was lots of grass there and s sand, of course. And it was still there. <laughs> Hawkins settled in Chilliwack after the war, raising his family with his wife, Mary. Hawkins' son, Tim, made the trip to Normandy with him. A hungry larcenous seagull photobombs a tourist in Maine. Right after the forecast, why the picture was a surprise, even to the woman who took it. All right, senior meteorologist Christy Gordon is with us with a look at that weather forecast. Two words. High pressure. Oh my right? goodness, you're so good. That's right. Another ridge of high pressure. This is the third one we've seen so far this spring, Sophie, where we're going to see another prolonged period of hot, dry weather and, of course, no rain, which is pretty scary when you think about it. And this stretch could last right through the, the weekend. So we'll be tracking it really closely. Right now, it's not super strong. We have had rain across the north coast, and we saw some cloud cover across the south coast. But it's going to strengthen tomorrow, and the center of the ridge is going to shift onshore. That means the temperatures are going to skyrocket. So so these were your temperatures today, low to mid-20s. Tomorrow, expect it to be mid-20s to 30-degree weather as that ridge really strengthens. So that's not only tomorrow, but it's also on Wednesday. Those will likely be the two hottest days. Thursday, we're going to see it break down a little bit. We'll start to see more onshore flow, so that will moderate the temperatures a little bit. But we still have no rain in the forecast, and it looks like this ridge will rebound, even though uh, we see a little bit of a weakening for a brief period. 
A reminder, hot cars are deadly in one hour, in less, less than one hour in the sunshine, in less than two hours. Make sure you just check your car when you're leaving to go to work. Make sure your car is empty and never leave kids or pets unattended in cars. And remember, heat stroke is an interesting one. If you see someone that's confused or has a bit of anxiety, um, that could be heat stroke. And the skin is not sweaty. It's actually hot and dry to the touch. And this is a scenario where you would absolutely want to call 911 because it can be deadly. Now, campfire bans in place for the northwestern corner of the province. Not campfire bans for this area, uh, but as of uh, Wednesday at noon, it will be included in the uh, the Kamloops Fire Region. So that's the Okanagan Region as well. And that's anything larger than a campfire you can have. Uh, sorry, you cannot have. You can have a campfire, but you cannot have anything larger than a campfire. There's your forecast. A chance of showers in the northwest. Otherwise, hot and dry right across the region. And we'll see it all week long. So we have no rain in the forecast, although temperatures will cool slightly as we approach the weekend. And I'll leave you with this shot of some beautiful clouds in Nicola Lake. Thanks to Georgie for, Georgie for that. Great clouds. All right. Thanks, Christy. California's Alicia Jessup was on vacation in Maine when she decided to take an appropriate picture of her newly purchased lobster roll in front of a lighthouse. As she took the picture, a seagull swooped in and grabbed her sandwich. She was dejected and embarrassed until she looked at her phone and then discovered that she had captured the exact moment the seagull had snatched her sandwich. Jessup says she didn't even know that she had pressed the button. The picture has been viewed hundreds of thousands of times and an online company has already jumped in selling mugs, t-shirts and beach towels featuring the picture. If any of you know who that seagull is or can identify it, please <laughs> phone the authorities. Yes. Stoppers. You can remain anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's what happens when you take pictures of your food. Just eat the food. I've never understood the pictures of the food bit. I see a lot of people do that. But <laughs> Apparently the seagull, after stealing uh, the sandwich, then dropped it so that he could share it with all the other seagulls. So, I mean, that what was nice. Kind seagull, yes. Right? <laughs> Very generous. So Another look at We the North. Raptors fans in Abbotsford tonight. Tensions high as they cheer on their team to potential victory. And in Toronto... It's wet out there, but Jurassic Park is still packed. A win tonight, of course, means the Raptors win the series. Historic for the team and for basketball in Canada. Crowd a little bit quiet now. Don't worry. Still on the first Long half. way to go. It's Long all fine. No panic. It's about time we win something. We actually invented the game, so. Exactly. Yeah. So it makes sense. Yeah. But, I mean, besides basketball, other things are going on. Yes. Yeah, speaking of uh, Canada's team... Uh, Canada's women's soccer team should win its group at the Women's World Cup in France. They are the favorites to finish first and make the knockout stage, but they didn't have an easy game to start things off today. Cameroon kept it close, and although the Canadians won, it was by the narrowest of margins. And there is the traditional pre-game team photo right there. Let's all smile, and now let's play. And uh, Canada had chances, but they didn't score until late in the first half. Kadesha Buchanan off Janine Becky's corner, gets the head, knocks it down, scores the goal to give Canada the 1-0 lead at halftime. Now, Canada had chances to add to it. Good chance here. Great pass by Ashley Lawrence to Michelle Prince, and she just misses here. But at the other end, Cameroon, similar play to the Canadian goal, but Claudine 
Mefu Metu just misses this. Canada holds on for the 1-0 win. New Zealand on Friday. When the Canucks started winning late last year, their chances of winning the draft lottery went way down with it and the chance to draft Quinn Hughes' brother Jack. New Jersey got first pick in the draft lottery and will likely select Jack Hughes unless someone makes him an offer they can't refuse, but that offer will not be coming from Jim Benning. The price is too high for the Canucks to realistically consider it, despite a dream of having Quinn and Jack together. Well, it would be nice to have both the Hughes brothers playing on the same team, if that's what you're asking, but uh, I don't think that's going to happen. He's, he's, he's a real good player. He's a dynamic player. He's... Um, you know, he plays with a lot of courage, taking the puck into the hard areas of the ice. What a feed from Jack Hughes. So as much as Canucks Nation would love to welcome Jack Hughes into the fold, it's just not in the cards for the Vancouver Canucks. At least not the hand Jim Benning's been dealt and the one he plans to play at the draft. A year ago, they got lucky when Quinn Hughes fell to them at 7th. This year, Benning expects another good prospect when they pick 10th. You know, obviously we have the two kids at the very top that are, you know, that are going to be star players. I think then there's there's a group of, you know, 10 or 12 kids after that. Um, some of them, I think, can step in and play next year. Other kids are going to need more development time. Um, but I think even if you go past that, like, there's still going to be players from 15 to 31 that are that are going to be good NHL players that are going to be available at that in that range. That can mean Jim Benning and the Canucks trading down from 10 if it meant acquiring someone they could slot into the lineup now or a top prospect. Just don't expect anything bold from Benning. It's just not part of his playbook. Also keeping in mind he's in the final year of his contract and Canucks ownership has yet to sign him to an extension. You know, we're going to still make all of the calls to other general managers and see what's out there and what's available. And if it makes sense for us to, you know, to look at certain things, we're going to look at those things. Um, I think it's exciting for our fan base. We've got a passionate fan base. They follow the kids in the draft and, you know, they're going to be excited uh, with the pick that we have at 10. Now, one first-round pick by the Canucks that's yet to see any game action in Vancouver is Ole Olevi. He has spent more time with Canuck doctors and Canuck players the past year. He had back surgery last summer, then knee surgery last December, but he is on skates again. He's, he went and met with uh, doctors last week. Uh, he's cleared to skate, and he's going to start skating today. So it's all part of you know going through his rehab, and he's making good strides, and we're hopeful that he can continue to you know make good strides in his rehab. Game five, Drake singing the national anthem. He's ready. Kevin Durant makes an appearance. He appears ready. In fact, his first shot was from three-point land, and it went in. But we can tell you that Durant has just left the game holding that calf that kept him out of the series until tonight. Raptors defense swarming per usual. Fast break. It's Kawhi Leonard. They're down by five, but as we said... Durant is now out of the game, and that will change things. Uh, doctors say former Red Sox superstar David Ortiz should fully recover from a gunshot wound he suffered at a bar last night in the Dominican Republic. That gunshot wound required six hours of surgery to repair his liver and his intestines. This morning, the Red Sox sent a plane to the Dominican Republic to fly Ortiz back to Boston to continue his treatment there. This is the video of what happened. 
We'll give you a warning. It could be disturbing for some viewers because you will see the moment Ortiz was shot. The shooter was at close range. Police have him and his accomplice who was beaten by the crowd at the bar before police arrived. They're both in custody. Authorities aren't saying why Ortiz was shot. His family doesn't think there was any reason he should be a target. And it does look like he'll make a full recovery. I have taken, this is embarrassing. She's been so lazy today. 1,729 steps today. But that's with your phone. Like, I, it says 1,750 for me, but I, like, ran to Coquitlam and back without my phone. Oh, well, then for sure, you probably got 20,000. Yeah. Well, there are some new questions tonight about just how much those fitness trackers so many of us use actually benefit our health. Research indicates they might be good for us physically, but mentally is another matter. As more Americans make health a priority, many are turning to technology. The fitness tracker has become kind of the obsession. But is that obsession really good for you? There are now more than 318,000 health apps and 340 wearable devices on the market. I'll find myself kind of just pacing back and forth or standing up just to get the last few parts of the goal done. If I don't get my 10,000 in a day, I feel bad. And that feeling is why some worry measuring fitness, diet, and sleep could be taking a toll on our mental health. While health tracking may prompt us to do more, research found it can make activities that were once enjoyable feel almost like a job. Not only decreasing enjoyment, but also lowering activity levels when those trackers are off. Dietitian Jessica Cording says the pressure to perform can feel overwhelming. These are really powerful tools for positive change, but they can trigger anxiety or obsessive thoughts and sometimes cause us to go a little bit too far and lose sight of the big picture of what we're trying to achieve with wellness. For four years, Candace Nelson wore her fitness tracker every day. I kind of focused on what I hadn't accomplished for the day instead of feeling proud of what I had. When she finally took off the tracker for good, she says a weight was lifted. It doesn't affect my life anymore. And striking the right balance between fitness and well-being might be the first step to good health. Kristen Dahlgren, NBC News, New York. How many steps did you take today? Um, 818. <laughs> the very fact that my... You didn't have your phone with you. The very fact that my phone is spying on me. It is. And I telling know. the world how many steps I took and the flights of stairs I went over is kind of creeping me out. They didn't even know about it. Now you're going to be obsessed. you got to click the little heart uh, app and check <laughs> it out. <laughs> now you're going to be checking every day. All right, go Raptors. There's a live shot of Jurassic Park as we say good evening. Good evening.